Uh, each week at Church Central, uh, we look at a passage from the Bible, see what it means, how it can apply to us. And today that passage will be Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 18 to 36. Luke 9, 18 to 36. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to that. It will appear behind me. The contrast looking okay? You probably can just about read it. But anyway, Luke 9, 18 to 36, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Here we go. One day, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter replied, You are the Messiah sent from God. Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them, and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. They didn't tell anyone at that time what they'd seen. So in our, uh, what we see today, we've got uh, kind of three different kind of bits going on in some cases. I'm going to approach two of those and show how they link together as we go along. But just to kind of summarize where we are, I think the context is really important today. We've been uh, speaking through Luke's gospel um, for a while now at, at Church Central. And just so you know, we are on the verge now of a, of a crucial change in the gospel. Not only as a church, we can have a little a break from Luke's gospel for a short while with another preaching series, but actually part of the reason for that is that in the gospel itself, a section is about to come to an end. Now, obviously, in our Bibles, we have the, the chapters nicely laid out for us with those big numbers, uh, like, let's say, one, two, three, whatever, the chapters. But they didn't have them in the original. Luke didn't intend those. They help us in some ways. Um, but they weren't there originally. But Luke's got specific sections of his gospel in mind. And we're about to finish, really, for Luke, what would have been one of the major uh, chapters. And it's marked by where Jesus was, his location. Jesus has been doing the stuff in and around Galilee, as I talked about last week, going from town to town, preaching the good news of the kingdom in Galilee, a specific area towards the top of Palestine. 
And he's about to go in uh, 951, he's about to leave Galilee and go to Jerusalem. And Luke uses that really to change the tone completely, to move on to a different section of his book. And as the location changes, the tone will change. So when we, uh, when we move on, when we come back to this, and you look past 951, there are less miracles happening. There are much more parables. There will be more about Jesus' death and resurrection. Actually, the only thing we've seen about Jesus' death and resurrection so far uh, is mentioned in this passage that we saw today, just Jesus predicting that will happen. That's going to be a feature of the next section. But what you will not be having at all from now on, after this talk in, Luke's, in the pages of Luke, will be references to this question that has dominated the last uh, five or six chapters and we see twice in this passage today. And the question is this, who is Jesus. Jesus asks it in two different ways here. First of all, he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then the more direct, I don't know if they saw this one coming, well, who do you say that I am? And actually, it's a question that if you've been around for any of these talks, you've read through Luke's gospel, you'll be very familiar with, because we've seen it five times in the last four uh, chapters. The Pharisees have asked it. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? The friends of the Pharisees have asked it. John the Baptist asked it. The disciples themselves have asked it. The the uh, stilling of the storm. Who is this man? And King Herod has asked it as well. And in a sense, that question, who is Jesus? Who is this man really? Is the central question Luke has been concerned with so far in the gospel. I mean, like I said, if you've been uh, at these talks, I'm sure, uh, I hope you've Learned loads of things from this gospel, loads of things in it. Things about Jesus' power, things about what it means to be sent, to be a disciple of Jesus, things about loving your enemies. Those things are very important. But it's almost as if those are added extras to the main thing that Luke wants to communicate, which is that there is this question that is central to everything, and he wants us to give an answer to it. Who is Jesus? And actually, once we're done today, that's it for Luke. Luke intends, once we're past this passage, for us to be able to say, great, tick, got that one, finished. I understand that. I'm no longer left now with open-mouthed questioning. I've got the answer. I know who he is. I've understood the key message that Luke was trying to communicate. And we see it here in verse 20. Peter says it. You are the Messiah sent from God. Now, I feel a bit of a, bit of a burden here. I, I, like, I like Luke. I think Luke's done a pretty decent job of this gospel. What do you reckon so far? It's all right? Yeah, I'm pretty pleased with him. I feel an attachment to this guy. If he's put all this effort into researching it, and this is the big point he wants to give, I feel that my job today really is I want to help us to really understand the weight of this statement. This is like, as he writes this, wow, that's, I've done that. Right, we can move on now. That's the big message I wanted to give you. And I want us to really get this. I, I want us to understand what that answer of Peter's means and why it's so important. And I want to do that by looking first at Peter's confession itself. What does that mean? But also at this rather puzzling story of what is called the transfiguration, where Jesus goes up on a mountain and meets Moses and Elijah. Because as I'll, I'll show you, it illustrates the same uh, point. And then I want to look at how that affects us, whoever we are today. So that's the plan. Okay, let's kick off with Peter's declaration, uh, his confession of Jesus, and to ask, well, why is this confession so important? He says, you are the Messiah sent from God. Now, I'm sure that word Messiah, while it's slightly unusual, wouldn't fit into every conversation you have in a day, wouldn't be totally unfamiliar to you. Uh, I'm sure that you'd probably, for everyone here, would have an idea it's a pretty important title. 
and it's usually related to Jesus. We usually have those things in our head. In fact, uh, that was exactly the take that a local child support magistrate had in America lately uh, when a mum came in and she'd got two kids, both first names begin with M. So I thought, well, what should I call the third one? Call him Messiah, as you do. And the child support uh, magistrate said this to her. The word Messiah is a title, and it's a title that has only been earned by one person, and that one person is Jesus Christ. So the parents were forced to change the child's name to Martin. I don't know if you caught that story. Ma- Martin, a fantastic name. I don't want to knock Martin, but uh, slightly strange. Anyway, um, now I think it's important for us to understand a little bit more than that child support magistrate. She was kind of on the right lines uh, there. Whether she should have changed the kid's name is another matter altogether. I was kind of thinking Messiah for our next kid, but you know... <laughs> It seems to be out of the way now. Um, but um, I think it's important that we, could, um, we understand a little bit more than this is a special word that is somehow linked to Jesus. And I say that we need to really get inside this word. What is Messiah? And what was that understood to be in those days? Well, Messiah, if we go back to it, it means an, the, the anointed one. The anointed one. And many people, and this relates back to Israel's history. In Israel's history, many people were anointed for things. Again, anointed is a word, again, most of us will probably have some reference for. But what it means, it's not a common word, it involved in those days having oil poured on your head to signify that you're going to be chosen for a specific job by God. So King David, when he's a young man, Samuel comes along, he anoints, he pours oil on his head, God is choosing you to be king. And different priests and prophets in the Old Testament are chosen in the same way. They're anointed for that task. However, the Messiah, the anointed one, was not just meant to be another one in this line of anointed special people God has chosen. No, the Messiah or the Christ, which is the same kind of word, well, the clear message of the Old Testament was this guy was going to be unique. He was going to be pivotal to human history in a way that no other anointed one, special person, hero, prophet, whatever, as it was going to be. And that belief came through hints and prophecies all through the Old Testament. I'll catch you up in, in this a little bit. Um, and just look at three. There, there, there are loads we could look at, but just look at three of these things that, that form this belief. So that by the time Jesus came, the Messiah was an idea that lots of people were thinking about. We're looking forward to this particular Messiah. So the first, first, I think, hint of this, it's not a promise as such, it's a, nothing more than a hint, but comes at the very, very beginning of the Bible. In fact, it comes almost the minute that a Messiah is needed, the minute that human beings fall. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, perfect relationship with God, they rebel, they disobey, and they're punished. Actually, the, as God comes to punish them, straight away he starts promising this individual. And it's actually as he, uh, he curses the serpent in the story in Genesis 3.15, This is what it says. God says, I will cause hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Serpent representing the enemies of God, the devil, okay, in that story. Instantly, God's saying, right, humans have fell. In the future, he is coming. One person is coming who will decisively crush the enemies of God, who will crush the devil, in this case. It's a hint. But on that, uh, as the Old Testament goes on, more flesh is given to this he in this, uh, this reference. And as we go into the story of Moses, Moses talks directly about this Messiah. And Moses, uh, in Exodus, sorry, Deuteronomy 18, 15, this is what Moses says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. 
Okay, so it's going to be, now we know a bit more about this Messiah, he's going to be a prophet like Moses. Moses is a very kind of important, influential character within that. And as, as that goes on, there is a definite sense that will surpass Moses as well. It must be listened to in a special way. Moving on to David, King David, the most famous uh, and influential and important Jewish king, uh, Israelite king of all time, really, most of the Messiah kind of prophecies revolve actually from around him, and there's loads that you could look at, but it becomes clear in David's time, there's a promise of one of David's offspring will rule on David's throne, whatever that may mean, and will be this person linked to the other prophecies. I'll give you one, one verse, Psalm 132, verse 11. It says this, The Lord swore on oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke, one of your own descendants I'll place on your throne. Again, it's this coming one. And this is all through the Old Testament is coming. So basically, there was this expectation of this unique individual coming. A person, a one-off person who was going to change everything for the better. Okay, kind of a prophet, kind of a king. Someone who was going to somehow defeat God's enemies and help God's people. And actually... For many Israelites, particularly if you think in the time of Jesus, their nation, which is so important to them, is is being overrun by the Romans. Uh, They don't have control over their own nation. For those guys, it's hopeless, religiously a hopeless situation. All of their hopes are invested in this figure. The Messiah is going to come, and he is going to fix it, whatever that might look like. I guess we, I hope we'd understand that sort of idea. Many of you would have probably understood that idea five minutes ago, probably. Uh, it's a nice idea, isn't it? What do you think? Having an idea of this, in the future, somebody is coming who is going to fix all of this, sort it all out for us. So it seems like a pleasant idea. It seems quite motivational. gives you kind of something to hope for. When things are going bad, you can just say, yeah, I'm looking here, but actually in the future, someone's going to come and fix this. It's going to be okay, you know. It's good when it's projected forward, but just think for a second about what happens at the crunch moment, which is not quite so comfortable, when someone appears who may actually be that person in the present. I mean, it's not necessarily obvious that they're going to be recognised. It's unlikely the Messiah will come with Messiah tattooed on his forehead, or called Messiah, or Martin for that matter. I mean, and even if he did, we'd be more suspicious of that. I mean, you're going to have to make a call on this. If that person stands before you and says, actually, look, are you in this, it's not in the future anymore. That, that person, that Messiah is here. That's what's happening in this passage. That's difficult. Pinning your hopes on a real person, a real individual, well, that's, there's a weight of expectation behind this that it means it would be naturally very difficult to accept anyone as this figure. Put it like this. Messiah in the abstract, in the future somewhere, that's a pleasant idea. A concrete Messiah standing in front of you, well, that's a bit more difficult. I mean, an abstract Messiah can hold together all sorts of contradictions, can't they? He's going to be kind of a king and kind of a priest, and he's going to rule, but he'll probably suffer as well, and it will be for God's people, but he's going to be a light for the Gentiles. Well, how do you match all that together? Oh, yeah, don't worry, he'll come. When he comes, he'll sort it all out. It's okay. It's like the, the woman at the well said in, uh, in John chapter 4. She said this, talking to Jesus. Look, I know the Messiah's coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. It's like saying, yeah, I, I can't fiddle with all this stuff. I don't really get it. Oh, when he comes, I'll put it off. It's to him. 
That's, that's okay. That's the abstract Messiah is all right. That's a nice idea. But when a real person comes to meet that weight of expectation, you know what? That's hard. That person's going to have to be pretty good. You're going to have to be pretty sure to give them that incredible label. The, the only one in history who will fix things in this way is you. I'm going to put that label on you. That's a hard thing. That's a hard call to make. Because actually, once you do that, it puts you in an incredibly vulnerable position. Once Peter said this, you're the, the Messiah sent from God. Suddenly, he is very, very vulnerable. It's almost like his fate now is not at all in his court. It's now utterly in the court of this one. He said, you're the Messiah. Because let's face it, if the Messiah fails you, you have nowhere else to go. Nowhere else to go. All of your hopes are now in this individual. You often get this, um, moving from kind of Old Testament history to popular culture, you often get this in films and books, don't you? This kind of Messiah figure. Um, don't know, who's seen The Matrix here? Let's have a show of hands, just see. Most of us, okay? Matrix, it's not the best hidden anagram in the world, but Neo is what? He's the, he's the one. The one that's promised to save the humans from the robots, but he's the prophesied one, the Messiah in that sort of sense. In, in uh, Lord of the Rings, all these prophecies about Isildur, Isildur, I think you say. Isildur's heir, Aragorn comes and he has the sword and he's been prophesied, he's the one, he's the one who's going to bring back the kingdom of men or whatever. Um, I, I think some Lord of the Rings geeks are whispering and got it all wrong, sorry about that, geeks. Uh, anyway, um, Star Wars, this is one for the geeks, is one will come who will bring balance to the force. I mean, it's exactly the same uh, sort of idea and all, these, all those stories built in the uh, kind of uh, the, the Western world would all have referred really to this. They all have their root in the Bible, in this kind of idea that we see here, really. So it's interesting, though. Uh, well, as we look through and look, think of those stories, it's funny that when the Messiah or the one comes in the story, it's very usual that people don't accept the one very readily. So again, sorry if you haven't seen The Matrix, but in The Matrix... Keanu Reeves appears, looking slightly wooden, kind of handsome as he does. Um, and Morpheus, Lawrence Fishburne, as he starts mumbling, oh, I think he's the one. No one else is going, yes, definitely the one. They're very cautious. No, 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 let's not accept him too early. Come on, let's not get carried away. Well, why not? Why does that not happen in, in films? Well, they know if they get it wrong, if they put all their hope in this guy and he gets beat, well, that's that. It's finished. It's, it's no one else. If the one can't do it, nobody can do it. The stakes are incredibly high here when we deal with messiahs. Look at how this happens in Luke's gospel. It's exactly the same thing. I don't know if you thought this. Up until Peter's declaration in Luke's gospel, nobody has explicitly called Jesus the Messiah. It's not been on anybody's lips in this gospel up to this point. I just need to clarify slightly there. No human being has called Jesus the Messiah. I mean, angels... They were pretty spot on at the beginning. They talked to the shepherds. They said, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Okay? Demons, funnily enough, know exactly who he is. He shuts them up because it says in Luke chapter 4, they knew he was the Christ. But when it comes to people, that's a whole different matter altogether. I mean, there's a couple of people who come pretty close. So when baby Jesus is presented at the temple, you've got these two characters, Simeon and Anna. And Simeon, it says, has been, been told by the Holy Spirit... He won't die until he sees the Christ. And he sees Jesus and he tells people about him. But 
Luke never puts those words on his lips. He says he's, he's the hope. He's going to help with this. He's going to be a light to the Gentiles. This. He doesn't put those words in his lips. Anna says he, she showed the, the baby. She talks about the baby to all those who are looking forward to the redemption of Israel. She's pretty much there. But what Luke's saying really, I think, is that they don't dare quite to go that full way. For most other people, for the vast majority of people, actually, they don't go anywhere near that, actually. Their responses are seen in this passage. Who do people say that I am, Jesus says. Well, you've got a list here. You've got John the Baptist, you've got Elijah, or one of the prophets return. That is what people, that is the common survey, Maury Pohl, done by the disciples of his day. Who is Jesus? Well, he's John the Baptist, he's Elijah, he's one of the prophets. That's what people are saying. I mean, think about this for a second. Seeing as the Messiah, this idea of the Messiah is so important in Jewish religion. They wouldn't be talking about this. It's not like Peter says, you're the Messiah, and everyone's like, Messiah, tricky one. Okay, I've got you. They're not saying that, okay? Now, with all that said, surely some people should at least have been suggesting that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, according to the disciples, nobody is saying it. They're simply equating him with a prophet. Someone special, but not utterly unique. I mean, think about how ridiculous their suggestions seem. I mean, Elijah, okay, in the Old Testament, Elijah, a powerful guy, calls fire down from heaven uh, and stuff like that. There is an expectation among some Jews that Elijah in some way will return in the future. So fair enough, maybe that's more plausible. There's no history in Jewish thought from the Old Testament of prophets resurrecting in the future. They don't have that in there. And they have, obviously don't believe in reincarnation, so that, I don't know where they're going with that. But think of the John the Baptist suggestion for a second. I, I don't get this. I don't understand this at all. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. He's only just been killed, for goodness sake. How could Jesus be John the Baptist? I, I could think of the conspiracy theorists at this point going, ah, convenient John's been put in prison all that time, isn't it? Have you ever thought of that? Do you really remember seeing the two in the same place at the same time? No? Neither do I. John the Baptist, Jesus, they've both got beards, both wear sandals, everything's good. <laughs> it's preposterous, it's a ridiculous idea. <laughs> Again, the, the geeks are still talking about Lord of the Rings over there, I don't know what, <laughs> what's going on. Um, to, to us reading Luke's Gospel, it's like we're banging our head against the wall going, of course he's the Messiah, come on, why has it taken you nine chapters to do this? He raises the dead, he controls the weather, he multiplies food, come on guys, catch up. But actually... I think we need to put ourselves in their shoes a bit here and consider the weight of this title. There is an enormity in recognising someone as the one. Because when your hope is in one individual, you have literally put all of your eggs into one basket. If he fails you, there's nowhere left to turn. It makes you incredibly vulnerable And actually, it commits you to revolve the rest of your life around the person who you have labelled with that weighty title. Listen, if if you label someone as another prophet, a John the Baptist, a prophet raised from the dead, or just another hero, you don't have that problem. They could do some good things, and they can fail. They can mess up. But you can always just say, yeah, but around the corner, there'll be another one. You know what? Messiahs don't work like that. If a Messiah fails, you've got nothing left. Peter is saying here, Jesus, I am totally burning my bridges here. It's you or it's no one. All my hope is now invested in you, Jesus. That's big. 
It's massive. Consider, as we go to the next story, the ramifications for you in that, as Jesus asks you, who do you say I am? It's not a small thing. Let's look on as we ponder that, because we'll see this exact same idea comes across again in this rather puzzling passage known as the Transfiguration. I wonder how many of you have read this before and scratched your heads and thought, what on earth is happening here? Now let's, but actually, as we, with, that, with that thought in, in mind, I, I can help you here, I think, um, because well, now we've understood what Peter's been up to in the bit before, it sheds light exactly on what's happening in this passage because the transfiguration really is just a, a repetition and a reinforcement of what we've seen already. Let's uh, look at what happens and I'll show you what I mean. What happens in the story of the transfiguration? Well, Jesus takes three of his disciples, including Peter of the you are the Messiah from God kind of claim. Um, he takes them all up this mountain and then things get weird okay? Jesus becomes really shiny. First weird thing. That's strange. It's unusual, okay? Then Moses and Elijah appear. This is now in trippy land, okay? This is very odd. Now, but think about it for a second. What's happening? What's, it, what's going on? Think back to what Jesus' question before. Who do people say I am? Well, here you have two of the options up on the mountain. John the Baptist, recently been beheaded, wouldn't have been that pretty to be there, I imagine. Probably that's why. But the other two are definitely here. And uh, they all seem very impressive. So in verse 31, the disciples are blown away by this. Verse 31, they were glorious to see. And at first, they all appear very similar. All on a level, Jesus, Moses, Elijah. And the question again arises, is Jesus just like these guys? Is he just another one of the prophets? Another religious hero in the model of those who've come before and presumably in the model of those who are going to come in the future. But as it goes on, it becomes clear that is not the case here in this story. Verse 32, Peter and the others had fallen asleep. Why would you fall asleep? They've got some narcolepsy going on. They always fall asleep. Anyway, Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with them, with him. Jesus appears to have a different glory here. He has a more powerful presence. He has a glory, or a shine about him, I suppose it seems in this story, that actually the other two are just, who are these other two men standing here? Peter still doesn't really get it, though. He's still very enamored by these two heroes, and he makes this statement in verse 33. Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. I mean, what are they, shelters or memorials? It tells us he blurts out without thinking. It's kind of a confusing thing. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What's Peter doing? Well, I think at this point, Peter's falling back into his old way of thinking here. He's putting these three on exactly the same level. Look, you three, wow, heroes in front of me. Well, actually, then something comes that puts that well and truly in its place. Verse 35. Then a voice from the cloud said, This, imagine this point, big finger pointing to Jesus. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. God himself speaks and makes it clear. These three guys are not on an equal footing, Peter. Remember back to a few minutes ago, okay? A few days ago when we, when we had this. They're not on an equal footing. One of them far surpasses the other two. And guess what? It's Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. The Messiah sent from God. 
God's saying he must be listened to in a way that you don't listen to any other voice. His opinion must be treated in a different way to which you treat any other opinion, even from those you respect. If you want a a summary of what Luke has been trying to communicate up to now in his gospel, I think verse 36 here, in a strange kind of almost slightly out of context way, does it actually. I think this is why why it's there. Verse 36 is this. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. Obviously, there's something about there's no one else with him, but actually there's more than that here. He's alone. Jesus is alone at the end of this passage, and Luke's been building up. Who is he? Who is he? You know what? He's alone. He is in a league of his own. He is the only one. He's the Son of God, the only one with this dual uh, human divine nature. He's alone. And he's the Messiah sent from God. He's the, the one that was promised, the one. No one will come after him doing what he's done. No one before has been there doing what he's done. He's the one who's going to decisively crush the devil and rescue God's people and bring hope to the world. He is the one. He's alone. And that's what Luke desperately wants us to get hold of above all else at this point in his gospel. Actually, he doesn't want us to be caught up in these miracles, and even these kind of strange casting out of demons, and even the ethical teaching for their own sake. He doesn't want us just to get enamored by those things. He wants to understand in all of those things, they point through to this truth, that in the gallery of human heroes, Jesus is utterly alone. Majestic, awesome, uniquely wonderful, the Messiah sent from God. So he is. So let's conclude this. I've got two points to bring this from the world of first century and Luke's writing to us, to our world today. How can we relate these things today? What difference do they make to us? Well, first, I guess for some of you, how this will hit you, this stuff, is just with a very, very obvious question that you are presuming at the moment everyone must be asking this morning, which is this. Why Jesus? Why should I put my eggs in the Jesus basket and not the Mohammed basket? Or not in the nobility of humanity basket? I mean, why? Why should I just... It's just because you say? I mean, different people, I go to a different place, they'll say, oh yeah, but the Messiah is X, or the Messiah is Y. Why? I think it's a great question, and I'm afraid I don't have just time to do it absolute justice this morning, but I do want to give you a pointer, if that's the question in your mind now, of how to go about answering that question. Because you see, this is not just a, a statement of kind of superstition, like saying, don't walk under any ladders. Why? Let's just don't do it. Don't do it. It's, it's bad. Black cats, no. It's not, it's not superstitious kind of dogma. No, Luke is not expecting us to believe this without any evidence. He wants us to look at the evidence, and we know this from the passage, from Peter's example. We know that Luke isn't just expecting us to swallow this with no evidence, because Peter doesn't swallow this without any evidence. Listen, this passage is not in Luke chapter 3. It's not when Peter first meets Jesus, he suddenly goes, The Messiah! No, it's in Luke chapter 9. It's after Peter has been alongside Jesus for, well, it's got to be at least a year at the moment, at least that sort of time. He's witnessed firsthand how he lives, what he says, the miracles, all of that sort of stuff. 
I mean, the passage before, if you were here last week, he's just seen Jesus multiply boys' pat lunch to literally enough food to feed an army. He's got evidence here. If you'd like to investigate the claim that Jesus could be the Messiah, if it's a why, why Jesus question, I'd encourage you to do the 21st century equivalent of hanging out with Jesus. That's what I encourage you to do. I've got three pointers of what that might look like. Number one, find out about him, get to know him. And the way we do that is through the accounts of his life. The Gospels, we've been, as I'm saying, if you, you might well have been here for many of them, we've been talking through the Gospel of Luke, the biography of Jesus that Luke gives us. Have a look at it, read through it. If you want to help with any of the passages, you can, we've got on our website sermons on the whole of the first nine chapters, every passage so far. As you look through, witness his miracles, see his kindness, look at his wisdom, kind of ponder his death at the end of his life. Think about his incredible resurrection, but get to know him through the accounts of his life. Secondly, start talking to him. Start praying. You don't need to use religious language, kind of fancy phrases to pray, and you can present him with your fears, your doubts even, your frustrations, your, your requests. My experience would be that Jesus answers prayer, that now you can talk to Jesus today. Resurrected in heaven, we can talk to him today. And, and there are occasions, it's not like a kind of vending machine where you put your money in, you know exactly what you're going to get out. But there are occasions, I could list many, where I say something, Quietly, no one's there, Jesus, this. And things happen, the way things pan out, literally leaves me open-mouthed. Wow. He hears, he responds, he's there, you can talk to him. So get to know him through the, the biographies of his life, start talking to him, and lastly, start hanging around with his people. Jesus said this in Matthew's Gospel, he said, when two or three people are gathered in my name, I'll, I'll be with them. Well, who are those people? Good news, guys. They're us. Look around you. We are those sort of people. We're gathered in Jesus' name, praising him above all else. And there's other churches like us who gather in Jesus' name. I'd encourage you, hang out with people like that. Hang out with us. Keep coming to meetings like this. Whether you're, you feel, I've been coming for ages. I still don't think I'd dot all the I's and cross all the T's. No, keep coming. Sign up for a life group in a couple of weeks, midweek group. Come to a, an alpha course we do or a big questions course we do. And you know what? Look at us. Watch us. If you can see anything in us that's kind of different or strange in, in a positive way, you'll see lots of things different and strange. But if you see them in a positive way, you know what? That's likely to be Jesus in us. Hang around with him and then you can make that decision. Because the same question is being asked of you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Christianity is not about blindly trusting our Messiah because that's the Christian thing to do. No, it's, it's about getting to know Jesus and putting your trust in him. That's what it is. And if you're interested in what that would look like, please keep listening because the final application point, I guess the main thing I want us to go with for most of us today is what I want to end with and that will flesh that out a little bit. Because for most of us who already are Christians, I think, look, I'm there, Jesus. I'm following Jesus. This passage reminds us that our faith, our Christianity, revolves not around religious teachings or traditions. It revolves around Jesus. He is at the center of everything. I want to think about that for a couple of minutes. 
there's all sorts of stuff as, as a Christian that's very important. And you'll know if you've been a Christian any, any length of time. Important teachings, philosophical ideas, moral instruction, religious ways of doing things. And those are important. But I think every now and again it's excellent to strip it all away and just say, what is it that I'm doing with my life here? This is a big thing for me. What is it? Well, it's all about Jesus. It's about accepting him as the Messiah, the totally unique one, who is unlike any other figure in history, in the future, and in your life at the present. He's the fulfillment of God's promises for rescuing and blessing the world. He's the one we invest all of our hopes and dreams and our aspirations and ambitions in. That's what being a Christian is. It's accepting Jesus as that one. That is the heart of Christianity. Can I ask you, is that the heart of your Christianity? Is that what drives your thoughts about what you see in the news? Does that lie at the heart of the decisions you make about where to live or what job to take or whether you should get married or who to marry or how to raise your kids or what to do with your money? It's about Jesus. It's because he is my only hope. Now, I do want to clarify that slightly because if I left it just there, we could get very super spiritual about this and be no help at all. Just be, oh yeah, yeah, I just look at Jesus and sing about Jesus all day. That's, that's what you mean. That's what Christianity is. Don't worry about the, the doctrine and the church and I mean that stuff. That, what Johnny's saying is those things are just peripheral. It's just about Jesus. No, I'm not saying that. I want to be very clear on this. What I'm saying is this, is At the root, our faith is built around the person of Jesus. And that is the reason all the other stuff is important. You might think that's really picky. But actually, if you get that thing wrong, if you get that muddled up, and you don't understand that, your Christianity will become a tradition and a duty and that alone. We do it all because of this thing. I'll give you one example. We we could choose others. But I'll give you the example of the Bible. I'll ask you a a direct question. Why do you take the Bible seriously? Think, think about it for a second. Why do you take, the, assuming you do, why do you take the Bible seriously? Why do you care about the, the example of King David or Ki- of Abraham? Why do the words of Jeremiah mean anything more to you than the words of John Lennon? Why does uh, Israel's law written thousands of years ago matter? Why does it matter what some bloke called Paul thought about sexual ethics in the first century AD? Why does it matter? Now, if the answer is just, well, well, I'm a Christian and that's what Christians do. And that may well be the answer, actually. If that's your answer, you've totally missed it. Completely misunderstood what we're about here. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying... You've missed the center of everything that we're doing. Because actually we love the Bible and we take it seriously because Jesus is our only hope. And Jesus loved the Bible and took it seriously. So we love the bits about him. We love the Gospels. The bits that talk about his life and what he said. And he's our only hope. But also we love the bits before him as well. We love the Old Testament. Why do we love the Old Testament? Well, because Jesus took the Old Testament deadly seriously. And he's our only hope. So in uh, Matthew 15, 3 to 6, Jesus makes it clear he sees the Old Testament as the unchanging word of God. 
John 10.35, which cannot be broken. Why do I care about Jeremiah? It's because Jesus is my only hope, and he cared about Jeremiah. Why do I believe that Adam was a real person, not a metaphor? Well, Jesus thought Adam was a real person, and he's my only hope. If he gets it wrong on Adam, I'm done. I'm gone. We love also the bits after Jesus, the book of Acts, the epistles, the letters, the book of Revelation, because they relate faithfully to Jesus as testified by those who knew him best. You might think, well, that's strange because Jesus didn't endorse the books after him. He didn't know about them. Actually, Jesus did endorse, in a way, the books after him. John chapter 16, 12 to 14, a very interesting thing Jesus said. Just before he died, he talked to his disciples, long, long speech, said this. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you what he receives from me. What Jesus is saying is this. In the future, the Spirit will help you guys, you 12, to faithfully understand and explain the heart of my message. Even the bits I haven't told you, and even the bits I couldn't tell you because I haven't died and risen from the dead yet. The Spirit will explain that. So when I look then at John's letters or Peter's letters, I take them seriously because Jesus promised them the Spirit was going to help you write all truth. He will lead you to all truth here. And when I look at, say, letters by those who aren't in that group who Jesus talked to, Paul or the letters, of he, letters to the Hebrews, well, I take them seriously because the disciples who Jesus said he promised would be led into all truth, they endorse those letters. That might sound complicated to you, but I tell you what, I trust those things, I spend time on those things because I love Jesus, not because of religious dogma. Remember, a short while ago, I had a friend, and she's never really considered the claims of Christianity at all because big sticking point for her is the stories that she thinks are preposterous in the Bible. So we were having a chat, and she said, I mean, come on, Noah's Ark, please, Noah's Ark. How can you? I'm not going any further, Noah's Ark, that's it, that's what I'm going to say. I had a Christian friend with me at the time, and they just said this. They said, look, listen, as a Christian, there are just some things you have to believe. That was it. It's the end of the conversation. That was it. I think that's what she expected my friend to say, actually. That's it. Let's talk about something that's ridiculous. Is that what we'd say? How, how would we answer that question? Assuming that you believe the story of Noah's Ark, why do you believe the apparently preposterous tale of how a man gathers animals from all over the world and survives for 40 days with them, not being drowned in dung or being eaten by carnivores? Why do you believe that story? That's not obvious to us. Why? Oh, because as a Christian, that's what I'm supposed to believe. No, that's not it. I believe that story. I believe it happened. Because Jesus had a view of the Old Testament that he believed it was historical. The Old Testament was historical accounts were about real people, that real happened. And you know what? He's my only hope. All of my eggs are in his basket, and I'm going to go with him. It's not a question of whether you'll follow religious dogma. It's a question of whether you will trust Jesus as your only hope. Because listen, I'll be honest with you. If Jesus fails me, I've got nothing. Can you say that? It's the course I set my life on when I became a Christian. It's Jesus or bust. All my money is invested in the bank of Jesus. 
And it means that when he says something to me, if it's at odds with my culture around me, or just my intellectual thinking, or the advice of someone else, you know what, I'm going with Jesus. It's not blind belief, it's trust in a man. And you know what, he's trustworthy. Peter got it right. That's what being a Christian is. So I ask you as I finish, will you burn your bridges today? Will you put all your eggs in Jesus' basket today? Will you declare him the Christ, the Messiah, the only hope, only one for you in the world? Will you commit to yourself to him and say, look, Jesus, the basis of what I've seen, the pages of the Bible and in my life so far, you know what? I want to commit you in a way that will say, if you fail me, I've got nothing. Jesus asks each of us today, who do you say that I am? Some for the first time. I you to commit yourself to him. As I said, for some of you, you need to just get to know him. Others, you might be at a point, yeah, even your heart now blurting out like Peter did all the time. Sometimes he blurted out things that were right. Sometimes that happens. Actually, he's the Messiah. You could start that adventure with him today. For others, it may be after years of following him, Jesus is asking you now to, to restate his centrality in your life. Maybe it's like, it's almost only Jesus. I've almost burned that bridge to everything else, but I need an escape route here. He's saying, blow it up. It's me only or it's nothing. Will he be the Messiah for you?